Hello, everyone, and welcome to And There You Go, a podcast about life. Whether you're hanging from a cliff by one hand or laughing your ass off, we'll cover it all. And now your co-hosts, Addie and Chad. Hey, everybody, this is Addie, and I'm sure it's kind of a surprise to hear from me today because Chad usually does the intro, but because he is sharing pieces of his story, he asked me to do the intro this time. And so I'm looking forward to hearing your story, Chad, because we'll be telling pieces of it for quite a while, but this is a pretty big piece. Yeah, it is. You know, I think uh, everybody's story has got a lot of pieces to it. You sure. know, And certainly yours does. You shared some of yours, very high level. And that's really what I uh, hope to do in this episode is share part of my story at a very high level. And so what I really want to do is break my story into two pieces. So mm-hmm. let me set this up by saying that for any of the listeners out there who haven't heard or, or don't know, I'm alcoholic and uh, my story is around uh, my addiction and how I recovered from that and how I have thrived since recovery. And that you recovery have, state. You have thrived. I have. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, and I, I really feel that too. And I feel more alive today than I ever have in my entire life, I think. And you had two times that you went to treatment for I did. Yes. alcohol. Yes. And that'll be a part of my story, so I'll I'll explain that. And we have had a lot of similar experiences. This one, the dichotomy is unbelievable because Mm -hmm. you are alcoholic. I dealt with alcoholics in my personal life in very, very different sorts of ways. And not just alcoholics, but addiction in general addiction in general from yes. being on what we would call in the addiction uh, recovery field uh, a loved one you are the loved one of uh, somebody who was addicted yes i've also experienced addiction in other ways with different people mm-hmm. but that's something that will yeah will come when i say a, a loved point. one I, I don't necessarily mean the one person i'm talking about those that you were involved with mm-hmm. and yeah and i think that would be real interesting to have a conversation where we explore what it's like on both sides of that coin. I do too. And so we'll have to jot that one down for a a conversation at a future date here. One side of the coin or the other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Mm -hmm. it's it's an interesting perspective on both sides. So we'll take a look at that one at some future date here. So I want to start my story. uh, Like I said, I want to break it into two parts and really talk about the first half of my story right now uh, on this episode. But what I want to do is I want to go to the end of the first half. So it's technically kind of what I would call the middle. I'm doing air quotes right now. Sure. But uh, the middle of my story. And I want to do that because I want people to get a sense of just how far down I fell in life. And then I'm going to backpedal and explain kind of how I got there. So in the vernacular of addiction, there is a term for your lowest, and that's called the bottom. 
I've heard of that. Yeah. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, people will say, you know, you're not going to recover. You're not going to want to recover until you hit your bottom. Well, as you alluded to, I had two stints in treatment. Mm-hmm. So I must have hit my bottom twice. But the thing is, bottoms are, are really kind of a relative thing. And so to put it into perspective, um, the ultimate bottom is when you're in the grave. You can't go any lower than that. No, you can't. So anything above that is just a relative bottom. And people's bottoms, sorry, it's <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> no, but this, no is, this is well said. But be, the, the people's bottoms can vary. And uh, it is true that if you relapse, your bottom becomes deeper. It will become deeper. And that, that's what happened to me. Uh, you know, going through recovery twice. The first time I went through, my bottom was at a certain level, and the second time, my bottom was way down there. And so that's where I want to start with my story. And I'll start with my story by saying that I was admitted admitted to the ER one evening after being awoken from being passed out in my bedroom and realizing that there were any number of people around me, including uh, my sister and my then wife, in addition to two paramedics and two police officers. Mm -hmm. And I was basically given the mandate, you come peacefully or we're going to take you, period. I didn't really have a choice. But what I do remember about that, that night was that um, I was done. I needed to be done. Right. Everything that you have talked about to me when it comes to this is that you were a rather subdued person drinking. Oh, absolutely. And so probably police officers might not have been needed, but you never know. Well, and I've had a conversation with my sister who was there, Mm -hmm. and she said, Chad, you're a big guy, and I didn't know how you were going to react to this. Sure. And to err on the side of caution you know, exactly the reason for having the the police there and the paramedics because of my physical condition. Mm-hmm. So off I go to the hospital. I was actually driven there by my sister and my uh, now ex-wife. Uh, from what I was told, the either the paramedics or the police followed them. I didn't know this at the time, uh, just in case something happened. But I got to the ER. They admitted me and uh, immediately started IV. And I, I think they gave me some sort of medication. Uh, I'm not sure what. And I remember just laying in the hospital in the bed and uh, spending the night there. And uh, it was a really kind of a, a surreal experience for me. When I woke up in the morning, I was told that because of my condition, I needed to go to a detox center. And so I was taken by ambulance to the detox center. I wasn't uh, driven. They didn't want to take any chances with the, uh, the condition that I was in. And uh, so I was driven by ambulance to the detox center. And if you've ever heard of anything about a detox center and what that's like and just how horrible it can be, it's all true. 
uh, it's, it's not a real great place to be. When I got there, I had to have assistance by two of the uh, attendants at the detox center help me off of the gurney, help me up uh, just a small flight, maybe four or five steps to get into the front door. And I was in that bad of shape. And I don't remember a lot about the facility other than it was an older building. Um, I remember there were a lot of people there. I remember that there were uh, some offices behind a cage-like area where the staff worked. There was a dining area. And then there was a, a hallway down to a very large room that was filled with cots. And it was all dark uh, because they were, you know, there were people like me in there and trying to sleep off uh, whatever substance that they, they had that brought them there. And it was really a, a, a difficult thing. And at that point in time, I was starting to feel the shakes from alcohol withdrawal. I'm sure it was very humbling. Uh, it was really, truly humbling and scary because the, the people there weren't in the best of shape. And you didn't know from a behavioral standpoint what was going to happen. Uh, a little bit into my stint there, they actually had to lock a person into a padded room that was there. And that person was just screaming and banging and uh, on the door to try to get out. And so there were, you know, potential for, there was a potential for very serious behavioral issues. And you never know, you know, is somebody going to go off on you or whatever, uh, you know, it's probably as close to a prison prison situation that I, I could possibly imagine. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Sounds like that. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's three things that really kind of stick with me from my experience there. In addition to feeling just like absolute crap because I didn't have my substance going into my body. But they had me on a medication to help with the withdrawals. The shakes. The shakes, yep. I struggled to eat. Um, you know, when, when you're using that heavily, you're just, you just don't eat. It was hard for me to keep things down. And one meal in particular that I remember, uh, it was a beef stew, and I could barely get the spoon to my mouth with broth in it. It was shaking so bad I couldn't get a glass up to my mouth without using two hands to hold it to try to steady myself, and even then I had to lean forward and, and pretty much brace my arms so that I could at least get a sip of water even. It was that horrible, and uh, it was just a, a sense of no control over my body whatsoever. Um, in no uncertain terms, I would imagine that you never thought you would be in this position. No, no. Oh, good Lord, no, no. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was something that you only really hear about, um, you know, maybe hear about on TV or in the news or, you know, something like that. And to be in this place was just, you know, absolutely surreal and demoralizing. I mean, of course, you know, going through my head right now is, my God, how have I let my family down and, you know, all of this, you know, that, that just, uh, you know, that swirls around in what you feel and, and, and some anger about it too. Uh, you know, to be honest, there there was some anger that, you know, how dare they put me in a place like this. But uh, some of the things that I noticed, uh, the first one was there was a young man there who, during a uh, an AA meeting that was actually held there one of the evenings, he had some words to say that were really profound to me. 
And I don't want to get into that right now. I want to come back to that on the second half of my story because those words have stuck with me ever since. And they're still with me today uh, in terms of the value that they gave me around how I want to go about making changes in my life. And again, that's that's more for the second half of the story. Sure. The second thing that I remember the most is that the uh, the, the main staff guy there pulled me aside and uh, basically said, you know, when you're done here, you're not welcome home. Uh, you know, you're going to be going to a, uh, a hotel to to wait, you know, and see what happens if you're going to go to treatment or not. And it's like my first thought was, Hell no, I'm not going to treatment. You know, I can figure this out myself. Again, that's that's for another part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that was really poignant that he told me about was as he looked at my chart, he said, holy buckets, you should be dead. Do you realize how lucky you are? And I said, no, I don't know. What do you mean? And he said, your blood alcohol content, your BAC from the hospital, it was 0.421. Point four two one, more than five times the legal limit. I had no idea. No idea. And he said, you're lucky to be alive. And that really stuck with me. The last thing that stuck with me, and probably the thing that really defines my recovery experience, or at least the start of my recovery experience, was a realization that I had So in this larger room that opened up, there were, I don't know how many cots, 20, 30 cots, um, people laying, scattering about. They weren't assigned. You just flopped where you had an open one. And I I did, and I tried to get some sleep. And I could hear people moaning and groaning or shuffling around or, you know, just just all kinds of just odd noises, you know, really kind of place that I never expected to be. And it was kind of scary and, and really demoralizing. And every now and then somebody would shuffle by. And uh, I'd take note and I'd try to go back to sleep. And, and uh, it just kept happening and happening. And one time somebody was shuffling by, a guy, and he ended up, uh, he was so unsteady, he fell on top of me in my cot. And all I could think about in that moment with this guy here was, is this how my children see me at home? Stumbling around, unsteady, falling at times. And the only answer I could come to, if I was being truly honest with myself, and I was in that moment, was yes, this is how my children see me. And in that moment, I think there was a turn in in how I saw myself where I was at at that point in time. So most of the time when things like this happen, there's a rationalization. Yeah. But it sounds like you almost were a step beyond that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think if we back up just a scooch um, to the night that I was taken to the hospital uh, when I was w- awoken from my um, comatose state, if you will, I mean, I passed out. I was passed out. And my sister woke me up, and she looked at me, and she said, you're going to the hospital. And I just knew in that moment 
that I had to be done. And this sense of surrendering came over me that I'm going to give myself over to this. It's happening, and I'm going to allow it to happen. I'm not going to fight it. Mm-hmm. I surrendered to it. And I think that surrender continued in that moment of realization that this is how my kids saw me. And it became, you know, it's just very uh, prominent in my thought process over the next few days and a few weeks and, and whatnot. And so here I am, just absolutely riddled with withdrawal symptoms and, uh, you know, in this awful, awful place. Guilt. Guilt, shame. shame. You know, everything that goes along with that. And all I could think about was, how did I get here? And, I mean, it was insane how my life had devolved into such degrading chaos, if that makes any sense. It does. Because, you know, here's the thing. In the again, I'm going to go back to in the vernacular of people in recovery. Um, there are people who are addicts and alcoholics, and then there are people who are normal, or as we call them in recovery, we call them normies. So you, for example, would be a normie. You can you can have a drink, and you can stop. Whereas me, I could have a drink, and then I couldn't stop, and didn't stop, and didn't want to stop, and so we called you normies. The thing is, though, thinking about me and thinking about where I was in that detox center, it's like, how could I be there? I was a normie. I was a normie until my late 30s. I didn't start abusing alcohol until I was in my late 30s. How can that be? How can somebody go from being normal and, and being able to say, no, you know, that's I've had enough, thanks, to somebody who can't get enough. There's not enough alcohol in the world to, to what is the phrase, sate my appetite for it. Or mm-hmm. So, I mean, I had that. And, you know, my life was normal. You know, I, I grew up, I, I had what I think was a fairly decent childhood. I mean, I got bullied in school uh, some, but I got decent grades. I was really shy and introverted, uh, but I had some friends, um, you know, I, I went through college and then grad school, had some success in grad school and had a string of decent jobs and uh, got married and had kids. I mean, it was a normal life. What the really? Hell? Yeah, I know, but what the hell <laughs> happened? And so I have to really kind of stop back or step back and, and think about what tripped me up. What happened that took me from being a normie to being a guy laying on a cot with another addict falling on top of him? Mm-hmm. So I, I have to look at different things like, was, was I simply just predisposed? You know, they, they, there's, there's talk about how uh, addiction can be uh, genetic. And I do believe that, um, that in, in some cases, and it's not in every case, but in some cases it can be genetic. Well, do I have that in any of my you know, family members? Um, well, the answer is yes. Uh, there are addicts in my family. There were, uh, I, had, I think I had an uncle who uh, I believe died from alcohol abuse. Um, mental health issues, yeah. I had a cousin that committed suicide. You know, so things like that. So I think, is that in play? I mean... 
But then, you know, I, I didn't really experience any of that. I didn't start drinking until I was in college for crying out loud, you know, and, and, and so what's going on with that? And so then I think, you know, well, could it be just kind of my makeup? Uh, you know, I was introverted. I had low self-esteem. Like I said, I was bullied a little bit, so maybe that led into it. Um, I did seri- uh, experience uh, a really serious bout of depression in college. You know, could I, does that mean I'm predisposed to alcoholism? Now, as a side note, there's something called co-occurring disorders when it comes to addiction. And that's where mental health issues walk hand in hand with addiction. Not causational necessarily, but they tend to go, they're correlated, that they tend to go hand in hand. So so people who suffer from depression or anxiety um, can also suffer from addiction as well. And again, there's not necessarily causation there, but there is a correlation there. So, so is that same thing as dual diagnoses? Yes, yes, okay. yeah, yep. Co-occurring disorders, dual diagnoses, the same thing. And um, so I wondered, you know, was there something there that was was a part of this? I'd, and I did experience uh, depression uh, early in my career. I had a very serious bout of depression in, in the early part of my career. You know, I, I at the time, I couldn't figure out what it was. Speaking of careers, also, uh, when I, you talk about having self-esteem issues or, or self-worth issues, um, I experienced a series of job losses, layoffs, completely unrelated to my capabilities. Right, uh, that's just part of the corporate world. That's a part of the corporate world. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just a numbers thing. In fact, one of them, one of the best jobs I ever had and the most rewarded I was ever uh, I was ever rewarded at a job and I'm talking financially rewarded not intrinsically rewarded but externally uh, extrinsically rewarded um, that that job I lost because they decided to cut a department of 80 people in half just summarily boom and, and they it just, don't think a thing of it no no it's it's a numbers game and you know and the thing is you know I've got a degrees in business and so I get the numbers part of it but man, it sucks being on the human side of it. Yeah, it, it, does. Re- it really does. Um, so you know, I've got things like that going on in my life, and then I have to factor in what I have come to believe is really probably the core of the issues. So in college, I met my wife to be, and uh, we uh, probably met. Oh, I think it was my junior year. And so we were going together for a while. And unfortunately, at, at the end of my stint in college, I found out that she had uh, cheated on me. And it was really hard. But because of my self-esteem, self-worth issues, I didn't have the wherewithal to walk away from it. Okay, so I own that part of it, but... But nonetheless, it had an impact. I mean, when you get cheated on, when, when you're betrayed, that, that trust that is demolished, destroyed, really can have an effect on you. And, and I do understand oh, that. Oh, I know you do. Because I, yes. there was infidelity and some relationships that were very serious for me. Yes. And so I know I said I was a normie before, but I think a, a normie, a normal person experiencing betrayal most times we'll walk away from the relationship, but I didn't. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was the first girlfriend I had. Ooh, there's a red flag, right? Uh, you know, it was the first relationship I ever really had. And I felt like I just needed to power through it. And I. It was almost like trauma bonding. Yeah, yeah very much so. Which is something that we'll talk about on another episode. Yeah, that would be a good one to, to get into as well. So I stuck with her. And I went through grad school after college. I went through grad school, and, and then we got married. And then we were at a point where we were going to try to have kids. Um, somewhere between trying to have kids and grad school, though, there were a series of, now I, I'm going to call them minor betrayals, but a betrayal is a betrayal, uh, where uh, she did things to demonstrate that she still had feelings for a former uh, boyfriend. Um, and this is, you were married. Uh, not quite at this point. Not quite, okay. And so, you know, there were, there were a series of things around that that occurred um, that were really betrayals. And then after we were married, but before we have kids, but as we were trying to have kids, I found out that she had been having an affair for over a year, just a full-blown, flat-out affair. And I don't want to go into the details of it. I was absolutely devastated absolutely devastated and then we had kids and again you know here's here's me looking back on on myself back then and why the hell didn't I leave well part of it was at that point in time I was invested in having a family and I honestly here's the sad part I thought that I was at fault for it. I thought I was deficient. So that's that low self-esteem, that low self-worth. So some of those things that I was wondering about before, the predisposition or, you know, the, the way I was, that all comes to play in all of this. Mm-hmm. And I know that right from the first time in college that, that this happened, there was a slow burn that started within me. The slow burn of anger and depression that I couldn't recognize. I didn't recognize. And I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to feel it. And so I stuffed it down. And every and time. You were pushing it down. Pushing it down. You Absolutely. You thought that it would just go away if you did that. Oh, yeah. Yep. I just, I just didn't have to deal with it. And each time that, you know, something would happen, there would be more piled on top of that. But I'd keep pushing it down and pushing it down. And it, it really became unbearable, but we were having kids at the time. And it progressed into that time frame when we were having kids that there was still contact. And it was just absolutely demoralizing. And I'm sure at that point, depression was setting in in some form. And then uh, it got to a point, and this was now where I said I, I really didn't start abusing alcohol until my late 30s. Mm-hmm. This was when it really kind of started. I remember one day um, I was mowing the lawn and I thought, well, maybe I should have like a gin and tonic. That was one of my favorite beverages to have. And I had one and it was a sunny day and it just felt good. And I just realized I, f- I felt better. I didn't feel the, 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 the churn of this crap inside of me. And and again, it wasn't surface level stuff. It was this slow burn that was down deep inside. And through this time frame as well is when I suffered some of those those job losses. And so I'm sure there's depression. There's a huge hit to the 
the, uh, the ego and the self-esteem and the self-worth, and it started building and building. And, you know, as, as layoffs happened, I would, I would get worried about finances, and so this noise started building in my head, and it just started to churn and burn everything inside of me, and the only thing that would help was the next drink. Now, I don't know when use turned to abuse, and I don't know when abuse turned into addiction. I can't tell you. I don't know when that happened, but it happened. And it it got to the point where I needed a drink. Um, you know, instead of 5 o'clock, it was 4 o'clock. Pretty soon it was, you know, noon hits, boom, take a drink. Now, this was usually on the weekends it started, and then in the evenings as well. And then it started to get progressively worse, and um, I would feel like I needed a drink before I went to work in the morning. And it just kept spiraling and getting out of control, but I always had in the back of my head, I can control this. I'll prove it. I'll stop. And so I'd stop for half a day, and I'd celebrate and say, you know what? I did it. I proved it. I can have a drink now. And, it, and I kept playing mind games with myself like that. And it got progressively worse and progressively worse. And then I hit a bottom, not the bottom, but I hit a bottom. Um, I was really drinking heavily um, at this point in time. And I had need to pick up one of my kids at uh, a school or church function, something. And uh, I had forgotten about it. I had been doing yard work, and I had been drinking pretty heavily. And uh, I went out, and uh, there was a little uh, traffic mishap, and the police were called, and I was arrested for drunk driving. And I had kids in the car. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is my wake-up call. I'm going to get sober. I'm going to stay sober but I didn't do it right. You know, I thought that was my bottom, but I didn't do it right. And, and I'll, how, I'll, how is it that you didn't do it right? Well, so I, I did everything right uh, by the book, meaning I, I went to court, I got that taken care of. Uh, I did uh, my community service. I proactively went to outpatient treatment. Uh, I worked AA with a sponsor, and I was sober for a year. You know, in a year, that's great. When I had come off of just, you know, drinking every day mm-hmm. and, and, and being a sober for a year was fantastic. And then a year came around and I thought, you know what? I got this. I, I think I can handle drinking a beer and, and, and saying that's it. So I had a beer and that was it. Until the next day when I had another beer and then another. And then pretty soon it was right back into the bottle of heavy-duty stuff by the end of the week. And generally, from my understanding, because I've been to several family weeks and things like that, if you relapse, you don't start at the beginning. Oh, no. No, it it took a good volume of alcohol to make me feel remotely buzzed, even after a year of being sober. So you're absolutely right. It, it, It takes that. And... That's a lot of times where uh, especially uh, drug addicts will OD, 
their bodies won't have the substance in, so they won't have the tolerance, but the, the need for that, the craving aspect of that, will cause them to take way more than they need, and then they'll overdose. Okay. And so, so at any rate, what happened after a year was I, I got through the AA program and, and all of that, and uh, then, you know, I, I, I fell down, and I fell down because I'd lost my higher power. And in AA, you adopt a higher power. Yeah. And usually for a lot of people, that's God or whatever you, whatever you decide that you want your higher power to be. In my case, it was God. But what I realized now years later was that that wasn't my higher power. I had picked the wrong higher power, and that's why I relapsed. And my higher power happened to be the probation that lasted that year that I was sober. So I was forced basically to stay sober or face jail time. And so that was my higher power. But I thought that was my bottom, but no such luck because I went right back into it. And then I had a major job loss and that sent me in a tailspin. So coming through that, I was unemployed for about a year and a half and that allowed me to drink really heavily. But, you know, again, there's the noise building up of the anxiety of finances and, uh, you know, the fact that I'm really not a productive person and I'm not doing well for my family or anything like that. And so all of this noise and this anxiety and, and the shame and the guilt and the need to squelch that and the alcohol, it just compounded itself and kept going and kept going until May 6th of 2015 when I summarily passed out and my sister came knocking on my door. And to this day, it's so hard for me to understand really how did I get there? I think I know, but I don't entirely know. So that's the first half of my story, kind of the 30,000-foot level. And in kind of like with your story, we'll come back and we can revisit you know, certain aspects and do some drill down and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But in the next episode that I do, that I talk about this, I really want to talk about what happened after I got out of detox and how did I get here to where I am now? So when I talk to people out and about now, uh, and I've done a lot of talking with people about addiction and, and recovery from addiction, I like to talk about this notion of being here and wanting to get there. And, you know, here is your current state, where you're at right now. For me, it was being at my bottom. And I wanted a sober life. How do I get there? And so the next episode that I talk about is, is how did I get from here to there? And kind of take a, a, a look at some of the things that I did, some of the things that I experienced. One thing that I noted because I've had experience with addiction, alcoholism, that kind of thing, is, and this might just be me, but I feel like with almost any addiction, not all, but almost, trauma is what affects whether you become addicted or not. Yeah, and I would agree wholeheartedly. Uh, I've worked in a number of different recovery centers with all kinds of people, uh, young and old, male, female. Uh, I saw so much trauma-related. And trauma isn't just, you know, somebody putting a gun to your head and robbing you. No. Trauma can be being cheated on. And I think in the the work that I did 
follow well within recovery uh, while I went to treatment and uh, following that, I really have come to understand that what I experienced with the betrayals that I had was a significant form of trauma. And that in all likelihood, that was probably the main cause for me to want to kind of numb myself. Sure, if you numb yourself, then you don't have to feel. Right, and I take full responsibility, and this is something that uh, I've worked through in you know my my recovery process. I take full responsibility for putting that alcohol in me. Mm -hmm. I sucked at dealing with my feelings, and like I said before, a normal person, whatever that may be, would have walked away from these relations, this relationship or these situations, but I didn't. I didn't handle it very well. And see, now I can understand that because when I look at myself at that age, the age you were in college and what happened, I can see myself trying to do whatever it took Yeah. because I I would blame myself before I'd blame anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And And you chose to drink. Yes. And so... It's not like you're just pushing the blame off on somebody else because you made that choice. Yep, that is squarely on me. Yep, but at the same time, there were outside influences when it came to the trauma that you experienced that made you want to drink. And I think the lesson there is that addiction is not black and white. The cause of addiction is not black and white. Mm -hmm. There's such a stigma about addiction and mental health in general, that it's it's some kind of a character defect, something wrong with the person. And no, no, no. There's not. <laughs> no, and, and the reality is that there is a reason why this person is doing it. It might be hard to see that reason. It might be hard to understand that reason. I mean, somebody could just be lost in life and not have a sense of purpose, and there's this great big emptiness that is causing them so much emotional, uh, mental distress, that they need to numb that somehow. It could be, I mean, you know, it could be buried. You might not even understand it. And what I found is that addiction and mental health don't give a shh. I'm not even going to say that (laughs) word, but you know what word I'm talking about. I do. You all do too. They don't give a rat's ass who you are. I have met so many different people from all walks of life that have been uh, affected by addiction to alcohol and drugs and uh, mental health issues. The judge who sentenced me for my DUI was an alcoholic, a recovered alcoholic. And so it's, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You can put any adjective you want in front of a person to describe who they are, their character, anything like that. It just doesn't matter. So... I think that what I want to wrap up by saying is that regardless of your bottom, where, where you are, there is always hope. I found a way out. I know so many people have found a way out. Some people haven't. I've known people who have not survived. Their bottom was the ultimate bottom. And it just breaks my heart. It, it kills me that this happens. But for those who are struggling or those who are loved ones of people struggling, 
know that there are ways and are things that can be done to get out. And again, I want to talk about some of that, how I experience that the next time that we have a conversation around this. Okay. And there you go. And there you go. Thank <laughs> you.